Where you go, I'll go. What you say, I say. That's the way Jesus lived. And we might say, well, that's Jesus, of course. That's Jesus. He would have lived that way. But the reality is that He lives in all of us who know Him. He's not just some historical figure or some remote figure. Jesus, of course, is seated in the heavenlies, the Scripture says. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He lives to make intercession for us right now. He's praying for us. But miracle of miracles, He has come to live in us. This is the uniform testimony of the New Testament. Greater is He who is in you, namely Jesus, than he who is in the world. That would be the devil. And consequently, we don't have to languish in the backwaters of our own resources when it comes to living the Christian life. It's His life in us. That's the Christian life. Well, that was free. Let's get to the text here. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. These come from the Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully you know, if you were to read the introductory remarks of Matthew, as he records what Jesus said in that wonderful teaching, he lets us know that Jesus saw the crowd, but then he zeroed in on his disciples. And please don't be confused. He's not talking only about his apostles. We normally and wrongly associate the term disciple with the apostles of Christ. Be sure, they were disciples. They were disciples before they became apostles. The apostles were chosen by Christ after praying all night alone on a mountain. He was given direction and he chose twelve out of, we don't know exactly how many disciples, but there would have been scores of them, I'm sure. But this was for all of those who were disciples. A disciple is an apprentice of Christ. A disciple is one who has indentured himself or herself to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has attached himself or herself to Jesus as his or her teacher. He's teacher for life. Most of us have graduated from school at least one time, and each of us can remember a teacher who was invaluable to our learning and growing and becoming who we have become. But seldom do we keep contact with those teachers. I have one teacher whom I keep contact with. And I love talking to him. I'm still being taught by him. Even though the last time I was in his classroom was in 1976. That's a long time ago. He's in his mid-90s now, and he's very sharp, I might add, and he still teaches me. Thank God for teachers. Jesus will never leave you, though. He will never forsake you, and we're going to be taught by him this morning, I'm sure, as we look at the things which he says in this portion, just two verses, and we're really going to focus on just one phrase in one of those verses, and then we're going to take an excursion into other parts of the New Testament to see what it has to say about Jesus and His being our teacher, what we can learn from Him. So let's begin with verse 13 of Matthew 7. 
in the New American Standard Bible. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and narrow is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are two words in the New Testament translated by our English word life. One has to do with physical or biological life. That's not the word which Jesus uses here. The other is used exclusively for spiritual life. It's the kind of life that Jesus speaks of when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That kind of life. It's also the same word which Jesus uses when he says, I've come that you might have life and life to the fullest. Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life. Just how narrow it is may be seen in the fact that Jesus speaks of himself in this way. He says, I am the way. Implying that there's no other way. There's only one way that you and I can have a relationship with God, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. Such a statement causes many people who are uninitiated to the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ to say to a person like me, who says what I just said, that Jesus is the only way, as being narrow-minded, bigoted, ignorant, all kinds of terms. And Jesus is the one who says this, and we who follow him have come to know him in this way. He is indeed the way. When Luke was writing the New Testament book of Acts, he talks about the church in various ways, but one of the terms he uses for the church, he simply calls the church the way. It's a way of life. It's not simply a way or an avenue to know the Lord, but it's the body of Christ. Jesus is the way. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we are, in fact, what the Bible says we are as the church of Christ, we are the body of Christ, Jesus indwells us, then we should resemble Him, shouldn't we? We should model our lives after Him. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible doesn't say simply that we are to imitate Christ. It does say that. But it says more than that. It tells us that Christ indwells us. He lives in us. And consequently, He indwells us to live His life through us. Let's think about this statement that Jesus makes. He says, narrow is the way. He was really speaking about Himself. I'm narrow. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus Christ limited Himself to a body? Of course, He was God, a very God, before He became one of us. That was quite a reduction, wasn't it? From the infinite God of the universe, reduced to 18 inches or so in the form of a baby when He came to be one of us. Jesus limited Himself geographically. I don't know if you've ever surveyed a map of what was the land of Israel in the time of Jesus. But if you have and you've 
looked at it a little more carefully, you know it's a small piece of land compared to the rest of the earth. In fact, it's about the same square mileage of the state of Connecticut. Some of you have been to the Northeast and been to the state of Connecticut. Not a very big state. But Jesus limited himself to that area. He could have gone anywhere he wanted to go. But he listened to what the Father had to say. The Father said, this is where I want you to put your roots down, and this is where I want to use you. If I were scripting the life of Jesus, I would have had him taking a trip to Athens. Athens, the city where all great thinkers for centuries had gone. And there he could exchange his thinking with others there, and his thinking would have been wowing to the people who heard it, all these genius philosophers. But he didn't go there. If I were scripting his life, I would have seen that he went to the city of Alexandria on the Nile River in Egypt. It was there that the largest library in the world existed in Jesus' day. I would have sent him there. And he could have schooled the people who took care of that library and telling them about things that he only knew. He didn't go to Rome either. Rome the center of the Roman Empire, a place where the greatest power in the world was represented, a place which had its own intellectual community, not to the same level that Athens and Alexandria would have had, but it was a place of learning too. But it was much more than that. It was a place of great commerce. It was a wealthy city, a busy city, teeming with people and I would have sent Jesus there if I were writing the story. But he didn't go to any of those places. Rather, he chose to drill down deep with a handful of men. Jesus didn't ignore the crowds. But as we saw in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, he looked at the crowd. One would like to know what was going through his mind as he looked at the crowd. I'm going to take a stab at it right here. I would suggest that when he looked at the crowd, he then thought about those men whom he had chosen in whom he was going to invest his life and knowing that these would be the ones who would carry on the enterprise when he was gone. He spent three and a half years pouring into that small group of men. And from that small group sprung the church of Jesus Christ. These men were ordinary men. They were tax collectors. They were insurrectionists in the group. Fishermen, business people. On and on. These men, just ordinary people, just like us. And what Christ still does today, if we are willing to be His disciples. He wants to do that in our hearts. And He wants to change us into His likeness. And what Jesus sets out to do, He always accomplishes. Jesus limited Himself geographically. Because He had a purpose that was not ordinary. He had the purpose of winning the world to Himself. And the history of Mankind since then has largely been 
dotted with experiences where people are coming to know Christ today. Statistics show that today there will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4 million people coming to Christ today in the world. That's hard to believe. It's still working. That's a poor way of saying it. The Holy Spirit is still working through Jesus. He lended himself also vocationally. Jesus could have done anything and done it better than anybody else, I would imagine. He was a carpenter. We know that. He was the son of a carpenter. And he gave himself to the work of the carpenter shop. Recent scholarship has uncovered the fact that a person who was called a carpenter didn't simply limit himself to building things with wood. That was part of the work. But this word for carpenter was also used to describe someone who was expert in stone cutting. And we can see how those two things would go together. If Jesus was a builder of homes, houses, other structures, it would be very helpful if he could know how to deal with stone and also with the infrastructure in the form of wood. But when Jesus entered into his public ministry, he already knew what he was going to be doing when he was 12 years old. Do you remember when he made the visit to the temple and his parents lost him? Can you imagine losing Jesus? Three days, they didn't know where he was. They were derelict in their duty. CPS would have been on them like a duck on a June bug, wouldn't they? Right on. But what happened? Joseph and Mary thought Jesus was with their counterpart. But when they found out, they got frantic, I'm sure. They looked for him and they looked for him. And when they found him, they scolded him. Mary in particular did. And he said, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? What was that business? That business was to teach people about God to give them a visible demonstration of the invisible God, to put them in touch with God, become man, and then to eventually save the world by dying on the cross, taking our sin upon Himself. Jesus knew what His vocation was. People tried to sidetrack Him from the fulfillment of that mission, even within the context of His teaching and preaching. For instance, His brothers... Yes, he did have brothers. There were four who were mentioned in the book of Matthew by name. And he had at least two sisters. The women are not named, but the word sister is pluralized. They weren't his cousins. There's another word for cousin in the New Testament language. They were brothers, Adelphoi, and sisters, Adelphi, is the way those words sound in the original language. Well, his brothers were getting ready to do what every practicing Jewish male, 20 years of age or older, was obligated to do. And they weren't just simply feeling obligation because they were going to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the most outstanding feast for Jewish people. It was more festive. It was not quite as heavy as, for instance, Passover would have been. And they were excited to go. They knew that Jesus would be going because he had done this throughout his maturity. He had gone to Jerusalem for this particular festival. And they said to him, now is the time, Jesus. 
They were a little bit uncertain, to say the least, about whether Jesus really was who Jesus portrayed himself to be, that he was the Messiah. They'd heard it. After all, they were his little brothers. Do you know what it's like to be a little brother? It can be miserable, I'll just tell you. Or a little sister, for that matter. But this is what they said to him. Big brother, no one does what he does in secret if he wants to be known publicly. So they think like we would think. Here's your opportune moment, Lord. Get in the limelight. Jesus said, that may be well and good for you, but that's not God's plan for me. So you see, these people were trying to get him off task. You remember perhaps a man, this is recorded in Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. A man, when Jesus is speaking, cries out, interrupts Jesus as he's teaching And he says, tell my brother to share the inheritance of our family with me. Jesus doesn't ignore the man. He says, who made me your judge or arbiter? And then he went right on to teach the gospel. He was not going to be sidetracked. That would have been a righteous act. He would have made something that was not right, right. He would have done that. However, he was not to be detained from his mission. He limited himself to be who he was, the teacher, the prophet, the one who brought the word of God to people. Also, Jesus limited himself ideologically. And I'm not sure what that word means, but it just came to my mind right now. Not really. It's a big old word. But it's philosophically might be another word. He limited himself in his ideas. We've already seen what he said about himself. I am the way. There are not many ways to God. There's only one way. And Jesus is, in fact, that way. Someone told me within the last week about a religion that he has learned about is Chislam. It's a contraction of Christianity and Islam together. Islam. Some of you have seen the bumper sticker that I see probably almost weekly. It's just a one word, coexist. Have you seen that? And there are symbols from like Christianity, the cross, and the crescent for Islam, the star of David for Judaism. And then I haven't gotten close enough to look at all the other things, but I'm sure there's symbols for other religions, a whole bunch of stuff. And the word coexist is made up of that word. Well, Jesus is no respecter of people. That's what the Bible tells us. He doesn't discriminate in the way in which he loves people. He doesn't make the kind of assessments which we make about people who are not like us. Jesus is indiscriminate in the way he relates to us. However, Jesus is insistent upon the fact that there are not multiple ways to God. He himself is the way. You might say he's dogmatic, but actually... It's a good kind of dogmatism because he's telling the truth. He knows it would be 
less than godlike to withhold that truth from us, especially when we need to know that in order to know God and have forgiveness of our sins and have eternal life. Jesus also limited himself socially. Jesus was not one who came to win friends. He came to influence people, but not to win friends. He was not somebody who tried to put people off and go hard against people just to prove that he could live without people either. But what he was committed to was to doing that which is full of righteousness and also at the same time full of mercy. The illustration from his life that comes to me when I think of this aspect of his self-limitation was when he went into the temple. He took a look at the temple. It was the time of Passover. You remember this. And when he looked at what he saw, he was deeply disturbed by it to the degree that he went out and he took some leather and he fashioned a whip and then he went in and he overturned the tables of the money changers and ran them out and just cleaned house, as it were. And he said in the process, my father's house, talking about the temple, is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. They were commercializing religion. Now pause here just a moment. This piggybacks well upon what I just mentioned when I said that Jesus limited himself ideologically, but that did not mean that he was exclusive in his outreach to people. The reason he was so upset, because he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. And he was thinking, at least in part, about Gentile people who had come from all over the Mediterranean world, having heard in some way or another or seen it demonstrated in the lives of people who were descendants of Abraham that there is one true God, or at least it seemed to be logical to them, and they were moved to go to this place where he was worshipped because their context was a context of many gods. And they came hungry to hear about this God, maybe to meet this guy. The only place that they could come as far as the temple was concerned, was a court which was not actually part of the temple proper, but where Gentile people could come. They were allowed to come if they were God-seekers. God-fearers is the term that the New Testament uses to describe them. And when they got there, all they could hear was the bleating of lambs, the bargaining between men who had money for temple tax And as they were bartering as to how much it would cost for them to get the tax or how much to pay for the animal, that was all that's going on. And those people had come a long way to maybe know the Lord. And it upset Jesus. And in the name of mercy, actually, on the Gentiles, in the name of justice, he drove those people away. Seems like he was harsh with them. But he was not. He was just doing what he was given to do. Such limitation let Jesus stay close to a few chosen hearts. That's what Christ would say to you today. 
He is limiting himself, wanting to know you, wanting to you for you to get to know him. And he would want us to imitate him in these areas. Jesus' life was limited by himself, and it was fulfilled because he limited himself. Jesus would have not been as fulfilled otherwise. Jesus was full of joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus says this to his followers. That would include us. I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. How could we be full of joy unless the joy that Jesus has given to us is fulfilling In your presence, the Bible says, speaking of God, there is fullness of joy. The implication is clear. Apart from the presence of Christ, we have no real joy. So, in limiting himself, Jesus was fulfilled and he shares that fulfillment with us. He's the only fully fulfilled person who's ever lived, except for those who have received him And have trusted him. And of his fullness, the Bible says, we have all received in grace upon grace. Jesus was full of peace, too. In John 14, 27, he says, My peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. I'm giving you a peace that passes understanding, is what Jesus says. And it's true, isn't it? Think about the life of Jesus. What was true of his peace? Jesus' peace began to be demonstrated before in his humanity he was even conscious of it. Because there was an attempt on his life before he was the age of two. Herod the Great found out that some men from the Far East had come and they had followed a star. They're known as the wise men, magi is the better term. We're usually associating them with three figures. We don't know for sure. There could have been more. But they came in their entourage and they sought an audience with Herod the Great because they were sure that he would know who his successor would be. It was something he was unaware of. It was very frustrating and infuriating to him. He wanted to do away with this so-called baby king. And so he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem as he found out from the scholars that in the book of Micah it was predicted that this personage would be born in Bethlehem and he gave orders to go and slay all the boys under two years of age there. Wow. But what happened? An angel came, told Joseph, you need to get your son, you need to get your wife, and you need to get out of here. They went to Egypt till the coast was clear and they came back. And on and on the story goes. Jesus was threatened in every stage of his life. But he had a peace. Can you see him before Pilate, the representative of the Caesar? And how Jesus was not uptight. He was relaxed, knowing full well what was going to happen to him. But he could stand toe-to-toe and face-to-face with the most powerful man in that region and speak to him with great assurance and calm. Jesus is full of peace. Do you know what he says here is true? 
My peace I give to you. It's not like the world's peace. The world's peace at best is passing. But the peace of Christ transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. When we receive Christ, we can be full of joy, independent of circumstances, and same is true of peace. Jesus was full of authority, too. When He finished the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gives us a narration of what response was made by those who heard it. And this is what the crowd said. First of all, Matthew says they were amazed. They were dumbfounded. And the reason for that was because He, that is Jesus, taught with authority. Not like their teachers, their scribes, but with authority. Jesus was different. Where did this authority come from? Well, it came from God the Father. We know Jesus preexisted as God. He was part of the Godhead. But when He became one of us, He did not lay His divinity down. He was still God. But what He did, He agreed with the Father that when He came to earth, He would come to do His will, not His own will. And He referred every decision to God the Father. And there's more than one place that the Bible talks about this. I'm going to cite one part of one verse, John 8, 28, where Jesus says, I do nothing on my own initiative. The things that I say, I simply repeat what the Father has said to me. This is Jesus. And that's where His authority comes from. The same is true for you if you know Christ. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple, that I may know how to respond to the weary one with a word. Morning by morning, he awakens me to listen like a disciple. When we know Christ, he lives in us. We have this unparalleled privilege to come before him, just like Mary of Bethany sitting at his feet and listening to the words of Jesus. And remember, Jesus said about her that this young lady has chosen that which can never be taken away from her. Listening to me and having my word and knowing how to respond to different situations in life. When God speaks to me, when I come before him and I read his word and he encourages me. I need encouragement. Do you need encouragement? Every morning I wake with a certain anticipation that God's going to encourage me. He may give me a swift kick in the rear end. He does that too. That's a different form of encouragement, but it's nonetheless encouragement. But I need encouragement. But what we oftentimes don't consider is that the word of encouragement He gives to us in our personal walk with Him is not ever to be simply spent on ourselves. It's to be invested in other people. The Lord never speaks to you, nor to me. He doesn't ever say anything to us that He does not want us to share with someone else. We may not know who that person is. But you can be sure as you go through your day, if you're that kind of person who's following Christ, that He's going to give you 
something to share with someone who's downhearted, downtrodden and disheartened. He will do it. He's full of authority because he heard from the Father and he simply was a channel of that to us. And we are a channel of what he says to us, to others. Jesus was full of power too. My favorite story probably about Jesus and his relationship to people and how he overcame the elements is the story of how he and his men were on the Sea of Galilee and a ferocious storm came up unlike any that these men had ever known, remembering that a large portion of that group of disciples had grown up on that sea and they made their living there. Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat on what Mark calls the cushion. He was so tired, he fell asleep and this storm didn't even phase him. That's a picture of the peace of God, for sure, in Christ. And after they'd done everything they knew to do to try to save their lives, they finally came to Jesus and they must have shaken him and said, Don't you care that we are about to perish? Jesus didn't even answer that. He just stood up and he said, Hush, be still. And what the scripture tells us is, immediately the storm stopped. And he chided them. He says, Oh, you of little faith. And then when they put their heads together and they were talking about what they had experienced, they said, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They recognized that he was no ordinary person. He had the power because he was indwelled by God. Jesus was full of success too. Do you know what success is? This is my thinking. Doing what you were created to do. We all have a similar general calling. We're to glorify God. That's kind of nebulous, isn't it? What does that mean? It means, I believe, knowing who you are, knowing who God is, knowing that you are no accident, He formed you in your mother's womb. As we read from Psalm 139, He formed our inward parts. The word literally, it's just one word in Hebrew. It's the word kidneys. He formed our kidneys and The Hebrews believe that the kidneys were the seat of emotion. So what he's saying there, the Spirit of God is inspiring David to write, is obvious, that my temperament, my psyche, if you will, was designed by God when I was formed in my mother's womb. And he had a particular purpose in mind for my temperament. Also, we know He formed our bodies. So, He gave you the body size you have, the color of your skin, the color of your hair, your eyes, your height, your body. All that stuff the Lord did, He knew in advance. And He had a special purpose in mind for you. We're no accident. It's ridiculous to say that we're accidents when you study the anatomy of a human being, and you see the complexity of it. It's mind-boggling. That's not something that just happened. It's the picture of a mind that's superior to anything we can imagine. But what the Bible says in Psalm 139 is this. All the days that were written for me, this is David, all of them, before there was one of them, every day was written in your book, Lord. Do you see 
that God created you for a specific purpose. And it's related to your temperament, your personality. It's also related to your level of intelligence and the special set of talents which you have at your first birth and the spiritual gifts which you have in your second birth. That's success. Being who God created you to be and gladly accepting this. You will be focused. I like what Paul says, as if it matters what I like. But the Bible records him as saying, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One thing he did. He did. He knew what his purpose was, and he was intent upon following the Lord and accomplishing it. We can know the same thing. Seek the Lord. He will show you what your purpose is. The great tenor Pavarotti never learned the whole opera like many of his peers did or his predecessors did. He didn't bother with those parts that didn't have anything to do with him. He knew when his part was coming. But the only part he ever sang was the part that he was given to sing. Hence, the secret to his great success. Of course, he was a very disciplined man. And he had a gift from the Lord, too. But he really narrowed his focus. He knew what his purpose was. Leonardo da Vinci, likewise, an artist, not a singer as we know, that we know of anyway. But da Vinci would look at the human hand. And so we're told by historians that he would draw a human hand sometimes a thousand times until he got it exactly the way he wanted it before he put it permanently in his artwork. Here's some steps to take for us to be full of Jesus. This is for us. First of all, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, be submitted to me. Come to me. This is where it all begins for us. Come to Christ. Also, we must follow Jesus. More than one time in the Gospels, Jesus says this. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In order to be what Christ would have us to be as his disciple, we have to come to him first. We have to learn from Him. The word learn is the verb form of the word disciple in the New Testament. We have to learn from Him. And then we follow Him. That's what a disciple of Christ does. He or she follows Christ. And then we must learn to abide in Christ. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And you will be a person who bears much fruit. We were created to bear much fruit, and this is why. By this is my Father glorified. Remember, that's our purpose. Jesus says, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. That's how we glorify the Lord. Trusting in Christ, depending upon Him. And He comes and indwells us, He fills us, and He uses us to bring glory to Himself. Here's the last thing in terms of application for us. We must be who God created us to be. 
Do not resist being who you are or doing what God created you to do. Seek the Lord while He may be found, the Bible says. Seek Him. Spend time alone asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Some of you have a gift for things that I will never have. And there are other people here who have gifts that you will never have or talents. But God will use each of us as we yield ourselves and those things which He has given to us. What does a man have that he did not receive is what the Bible says. A man can receive nothing except what is given to him from heaven. So whatever abilities you have, whatever gifts you have, whatever term you might want to wish to give to those things that make you unique, realize they're gifts from the Lord. And you're not your own if you're a believer. You've been bought with a price, and therefore you are to glorify God through your body. That's true of you, if you know the Lord. It's true of me. This is what God calls us to. Jesus, the Bible says, emptied himself in order to become one of us. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says this about Jesus. Though he was rich, talking about his being in heaven before he became a human. Though he was rich, he became poor. We don't even know what poverty is compared to what that was like. In order that we might become rich through His grace. And then we know what Jesus said. I've already alluded to it once. But He said, I've come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. That's the abundant life filled with Christ and being used by Him to glorify the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You now and we say we want to know Jesus better. We want to yield ourselves to You, Jesus. Could You just pray that to the Lord in Your heart? Lord, I have been withholding some of myself from You. I want to really give You control in a new way in my life. And Jesus, I want to follow You, not just sometimes. But I would want to follow you all the time. Lord, I know I fall off the path along the way. I'm sorry, Lord. But please, when I do deviate from following you, I'll know it immediately. And I'll confess it and get back in step with you. And Lord, teach me to abide in you. I want to bear fruit, Lord. Fruit that remains. Fruit that will glorify you. Fruit that could only be explained by your work in and through me. We thank you for this, Lord. Help us to be like you. We ask this in your name. Amen.